today's sermon title is Some of God's Purposes in Suffering. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, and some of God's purposes in suffering. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experienced when you patiently endured the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series on suffering today. It's a series where we've been seeing that God is sovereign over everything that happens in his world. He is firmly in control of everything that happens, including the suffering that comes to you. We've seen that he's sovereign, but we've also seen that there are reasons to trust him when you're suffering. Reasons that are so compelling that suffering, even though it's never a good thing in itself, it can be used as a tool in his hands so that you experience his love that much more and you experience his spiritual power in your own life. Now, before we dive into today's passage, I wanted to recommend a couple resources that you might find helpful. There are two electronic articles that tackle the question of God's so sovereignty over suffering. You can find those links on our website. There's one from John Piper. He comes at the issue from a little bit more of a systematic theological approach. And so he's going to look at 10 different aspects that Scripture teaches about God's sovereignty and suffering. The other one from Derek Thomas, just uh, was sent out this week actually, takes a more in-depth look at three accounts of people who have suffered in Scripture while acknowledging that God was involved in all of those details. Both articles are really good. They're very easy to understand and challenging uh, to digest. As I said, you can find the links for them on our website. You can go to www.renewalmainline.org. We've put them under the announcement tab. Highly recommend both of those. And if you're looking for more of a book-length treatment on the same subject, let me suggest Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I can't remember if I've told you this before or not, but the wives of the pastors and elders get together regularly throughout the year. They've been working through this book over the last... I don't know, six, nine months or something along those lines. 
So if this is a, a topic that you'd like to explore more in depth, there are other people in the community who have gone through the book or are going through it now. You can talk with them about it. Book is good, very different from Piper and Thomas's articles. Keller's more of an apologist, so he divides this book into three categories. The first three sections. The first section unpacks how the larger world deals with suffering. Second section talks about how Christianity approaches suffering. And then third section is more practical. How do we as believers approach God as we wrestle with suffering? Overall content of the book, I think, is well worth your time. I would say that uh, even if you're not interested in all of the apologetics and all of the theology, you still should get this book. Because at the end of the first 10 chapters, there is a uh, story of someone in the modern era who is wrestling through their own uh, story of suffering. And those testimonials alone are worth the price of the book. So if all you did was get the book and read the last two or three pages of the first 10 chapters, it would be well worth your time. You'd be encouraged in your faith because you would see that Christianity actually works. It, it works on the ground in very difficult situations, and I think you would be challenged um, as you read about people who face harder things than most of us can imagine. They struggle honestly with them, but then they come out stronger in the end spiritually, more convinced than ever that God loves them. That's Keller's walking with God through pain and suffering. Okay, turning to our passage for today, the section of Corinthians that Pastor Nick read. It's all about comfort. The word comfort shows up 10 times in five verses. The passage is all about comfort, and it's all about suffering and affliction. Paul uses those two words seven times total in the same section. One New Testament scholar, Scott Halfman, points out that Paul talks more about comfort than any other New Testament writer, and he talks more about comfort in this letter than he talks about in all of the other letters that he wrote, and he talks about comfort in this section more than throughout the rest of the letter. And he talks more about comfort because you can do that same analysis with suffering. If you analyze suffering, you realize that Paul talks more about suffering than any other author in the New Testament, more so in this letter than in any other letter, and more so in this section than throughout the rest of the letter. And so you realize that these two things go together, suffering and comfort. And yet that's a combination that you don't always see together in the modern Western church. Instead, we tend to slide off onto one extreme or the other. And so some of us expect too little from God when we suffer. And we turn stoicism into a virtue. We believe that godliness means we just have to accept what we're dealing with, that we have to buck up, do the best we can, bravely soldier on as if nothing had happened. And we don't believe God enough when he says, verse 3, that he's the God of all comfort. We don't expect enough from him. Others of us, though, expect too much. We've been influenced by theology that says that since Jesus died and rose again, all the blessings of God should be ours now. That belief rightly sees that the new creation really has begun with Jesus' resurrection. It, that new creation really has broken into the old one. But that theology ignores that that new creation is not yet fully here. That this world is not yet fully renewed until the next age. And so you can't expect all of the blessings of the future age to be yours in the present. 
If you do expect that, then you will look for God to comfort you by taking away any and all suffering, and you'll end up expecting too much from Him in this present age. Now, you can actually step outside the church, and you realize that it's not just the church that struggles with wanting too much or too little. Buddhism tells you that you won't suffer if you don't desire. It tells you don't expect too much. Don't expect too much comfort in this world. On the other hand, secularism tells you you don't need to suffer because we can fix it all right now. We can get rid of it, suffering, so expect it to all go away. Christianity comes along and offers us a whole lot more than that. It tells us that there is real comfort now. There is real solid comfort that you can build your life on. That there's real comfort now because there is real suffering now. There's real comfort because you will need to be comforted. And that real comfort is available because there's a real God who wants to comfort you. That's what today's passage is all about. And to see that more clearly, we'll look at three things today. First, we'll see what comfort is not, what we're not looking for from God. Second, we'll see what comfort is, what we are looking for. And third, we'll see how to get this kind of comfort from Him. So three things today about the comfort God gives, what it's not, what it is, and how to get it. First, we are so conditioned in the modern world to believe that what is external to us causes us to respond in certain ways. We are so conditioned to believe that our external world is responsible for controlling our inner one that when we hear the word comfort, we tend to associate that with good feelings that come because whatever was stressing us, whatever was threatening us, is no longer there. And so we associate comfort with a subjective feeling of relief because the stressor is gone. So we say things like, okay, whew, that's over. I'm no longer sick. I don't have to deal with that person any longer. I don't have to deal with that situation anymore. And now I feel better. Now I feel more settled inside, better able to face the world now that the world has changed. And Paul says that's not the kind of comfort that God has in mind. He says God's comfort is more robust than that. That what Paul was feeling when he was comforted was verse 8. Utterly burdened beyond his strength. So much so that he despaired of life itself. And he felt, verse 9, that he had received the sentence of death. He's not saying that when God comforted him, that he felt good. Or that he felt good about life. That he felt warm and cozy. That he felt safe, secure. He's not saying that life got any easier when he experienced God's comforting. He says that he experienced God's comfort while he was utterly burdened, facing certain death. God's comfort doesn't mean that you feel good. And it doesn't mean that you feel like you can take on the world, that you're ready for anything, that you got this. What are all those phrases? They're trying to get at the, there, there are various ways that we talk about what it's like to rely on ourselves to deal with life. I got this. And that's exactly what Paul, verse 9, says he couldn't do. That when he received the sentence of death, that that sentence made him realize that he could not rely on himself to deal with this experience that he was having. They need to rely on God instead. In other words, the kind of comfort that God offers is not what our world looks for. 
We want to feel simultaneously internally settled and confident that we can handle whatever life throws at us. And it's not the kind of comfort that God is offering. So you can't read this passage through the modern notions of well-being. It's not what it's talking about. Comfort is not about you feeling good, feeling strong, feeling confident in yourself. <laughs> and, and, and I debated this because I'm a little nervous saying that. Because our world is pitched to such an extreme, focusing on our feelings, being preoccupied with how we feel, validating our feelings, making sure that we feel good about ourselves. We are so consumed with monitoring how good we feel at any given moment that if you say this kind of comfort is not about you feeling good, then my fear is that some of us are going to hear God doesn't care about my feelings. He doesn't want me to feel good, to enjoy life. Instead, he wants me to be miserable. That's not what this passage is saying. But when you and your society are at one extreme end of the continuum, then it's easy to hear anything less than that pole as being on the complete opposite end. And so this morning, you have to keep in mind that what we are talking about is comfort. Real comfort that helps you deal with real life. And so you have to get rid of all those thoughts that, you know, this passage, it, it, it's not trying to say that suffering is good. Not saying that you should throw yourself into suffering. Not saying that if you were a really godly person, you'd sign up to be a martyr. This passage does not glorify suffering. It doesn't say that you're supposed to be miserable in life. Instead, it is about you receiving comfort in your suffering. But it's comfort as God defines comfort. Not the kind of comfort that you're used to receiving when you listen to the larger world. That's point one. That's what comfort is not. So, moving on. Point two. What kind of comfort are we looking for from God? Okay, keep in mind the background pressures that Paul's experiencing in verses 8 and 9. Doesn't have the strength to keep going. Burdened beyond what he can handle. Convinced that he's about to die, that he received the sentence of death. Put yourself there. To the best of his ability, Paul steps back from what's going on in his life and assesses the situation and at that time says, I can't keep going. <laughs> Something's got to give. And it's going to be me. I'm going to die. And then he says, very odd, but there was a purpose in that. It didn't happen to me randomly. It wasn't just dumb luck. It wasn't even something avoidable. It came to me. It was earmarked for me for a very specific reason. Verse 9, that experience was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's a purpose in it. And that purpose, he real, realizes, is from the Lord. And he says that situation was tailor-made to produce a new kind of reliance in us. God was involved in what was going on to produce two things. First, this experience was to uncurl our hands from relying on ourselves. It was to get us to not rely on ourselves, to get us out of what we were dealing with, or to get us through it. And you all know what that means to rely on yourself. For some of us, relying on ourselves means that you rely on your own natural disposition. Maybe it's your ability to compartmentalize things that you don't like so that you don't think about them. 
or your natural optimism that believes, ah, life will always work out, we'll just have to get over this, or to rely on your ability to put your head down and just plow through. It's easy in times of stress to fall back on our innate abilities and to believe that those abilities are enough to get us through. Or maybe you're easily tempted to rely on some way of escaping the pain that you feel. Tempted to provide some relief for what you feel, to give yourself some space. Or maybe you rely on your ability to problem solve, to get out from under what you're dealing with. Or you give yourself some kind of pep talk to get through. Hey, we're almost there. Just keep going. God helps those who help themselves. Just keep swimming. We all have different coping mechanisms for dealing with suffering. Some that are innate, some that we learn in life. But the common theme that runs through all of them is that we put our confidence in those things to get us through the hard times of life. And Paul says here that he ran into something that was so big that there was nothing he could do. He was not big enough to deal with it. And that that was part of God's purpose in bringing it into his life. It was to teach Paul not to rely on himself, but to rely on God. Now, why? Why, why is needing to rely on God so important that God was willing to let Paul be squeezed this hard? And why is this any good? I mean, you could almost see this as God being some kind of cosmic bully, a needy God feeding his own ego by having people need him. How is learning to rely on God good? How does it show us a good God, and how is it good for God's people? It's because God knows something that you and I need to learn and relearn, learn a little bit more, and that is that we don't have independent lives. We're not like God. We don't have our own life source inside of us that we can rely on. Instead, we only have life because God gives us life. And our life is only sustained because he gives us everything that we need for life. And in that sense, we already do rely on God, but too often we're just not aware of it. We don't think about it. We don't practice that kind of reliance. And so our default setting is to rely on ourselves throughout most of life. But then suffering comes along, and it does what? It exposes us. It makes us aware that all of the things that we rely on can be taken away at some point. That all of our strengths wear out at some point. That our coping mechanisms will eventually come up against something that they can't cope with. That ultimately, we can't rely on ourselves to have a good life. And God takes and drives that point home by bringing Paul to a point where he's about to die. Now, what is that point? Death is the point where you come face to face with the hard reality that none of the things that you've relied on to get you through life are strong enough to save your life. That none of them can save you from the ultimate suffering. They can't save you from death. And if those things can't save you from that, then if you lean on them throughout your life, what are you doing? You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself into believing something that isn't true. You're teaching yourself to believe you don't need to rely on God, that you can save yourself from bad things, 
that your schemes and plans and coping mechanisms and innate abilities, that those things are strong enough to rely on, strong enough to hold you up, when the reality is that they're going to fail you and that they will fail you at the time of your greatest need because none of them can save you from death. And you and I need to know that before we face death. We need to know that relying on God is not nice. It's not an add-on to an otherwise pretty decent life. It's necessary. But you can't learn that kind of God-reliance by relying on yourself and relying on yourself and relying on yourself and relying on yourself and relying on yourself so that one day you finally go, oh, now I rely on God. Instead, you have to practice that kind of God-reliance throughout life so that it becomes a way of life. And God, in his mercy to Paul, let him experience something that took him to the end of himself, took him to the end of what he could provide for himself so that Paul could learn more than he already knew to rely on God, to rely on something that would save him when nothing else could. In other words, God is not mean here. He's not cruel. He's merciful. He's kind. He brought things into Paul's life that took him to the end of himself so that Paul had no choice but to realize how much he really needed to rely on God. Now, how do you know that that's what he was supposed to learn? Look at what he says he relied on God for. Verse 9 again. This experience was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You realize Paul doesn't write this like a modern person. Okay, if I'm writing this, maybe if you're writing this, what, what is it that we would write? We would want to rely on a God who keeps us from dying. We, we want a God who will rescue us from dying, who keeps us out of any kind of suffering that even comes close to dying. But Paul knows something. He knows that once sin entered the world, we're all under the sentence of death. That we can be certain that every person who is conceived will die. And so by relying on yourself, you might be able to hold death off for a little while. But ultimately, that's a fight that you will not win. And so in his kindness, God gave Paul an experience that brought him to the end of himself and it was an experience that gave him real comfort. Because anyone can have a God who steps in to make your life a little nicer. A God who rescues you from disease, from enemies, from financial ruin, natural disasters. Think about it long enough, you realize you don't even need a God for that. You can rely on the state. You can rely on your nation, rely on technology to protect you from those kind of things. But no one and none of that can rescue you after you die, except this God, this one who's already proven that he can do that by raising Jesus from the dead, this one who proved that he can raise the dead and who has promised that he will raise the followers of Christ from the dead as well, who will raise them because he loves them. It's that God Paul experiences while he's suffering, and it's that reality that Paul then relies on. He relies on this unbreakable connection between Christ and his people. A connection so that if we are joined to him, if we are loved by him, then we share everything with him. 
we share in his death. Our sin nature is put to death. And we will share in his resurrection. We, one day we will have physical life again in a body that's raised to be just like his. And it's that reality and that God that comforts Paul. It's not hoping that maybe God will keep him from going through bad things. Instead, it's relying on God, trusting God to do what he's promised, to rescue him after the worst thing happens by raising him from the dead. That's the purpose behind what God was doing by bringing these pressures to bear in Paul's life. Bringing Paul to the place where he could not rely on himself, but on this God who raises the dead. And brothers and sisters, take this to heart. You can expect this same God to do this in your life too. To bring things into your life that will make you ask, what do I turn to now? What do I trust to get me through this? Do I turn to God to strengthen me and encourage me? Do I rely on Him or do I turn to something else? It's one of the questions that suffering always makes you ask. And if you're thinking through the sermon series of this winter, you realize it's a question of the heart, of what do I trust? It's a question of worship. What do I think is necessary as I'm being squeezed? What do I have to have in this moment that I can't live without? What will I trust to deal with the hardships of life? Which way will I turn? To God in this moment or away from Him? This is part of how God raises His children. He brings things into their lives that help them face these questions. That bring these questions to the surface so that you make intentional decisions as to whether you love and value Him, even if you're suffering, or whether you find something else more wonderful, more compelling than Him. And please realize here that the amount of pressure is not what's critical in this equation. See, for some of us, it takes an awful lot to bring us to this point of faith, of, of having to decide, do I turn to God, do I turn away? We've walked with God, we've trusted Him for a number of years, and so, like Paul, we just about have to be faced with the reality of dying in order to see whether we're going to fall back on relying on ourselves or on this God who raises the dead. For others of us, it doesn't take much pressure at all. Someone says something negative about us to someone else, and, and we're right there, staring at that crossroad, faced with incredible temptation to rely on ourselves and not on Him. And you know what? It, it really doesn't matter which of that, those is true of you. What matters is what you do when you're squeezed what you do when God squeezes you. What matters is that you learn to rely in the present moment on a God who loves you so much that he will raise you in the future so that you can be with him, so that he can share his goodness with you. Get hold of this God who loves you this much. Experience him when you're under pressure, whether it's a lot of pressure or a little bit of pressure. Be comforted by his eternal commitment to you that you can experience in this present moment. Get hold of that, and it will change your life. And it'll change it for the better. Now, that might not be obvious at first glance. See, what does our society value? It, it values the hard-driving, super-confident person. 
the one who has never met a challenge that they didn't attack and overcome. That's part of what our culture values, part of what it promotes. And so, so when you talk about not relying on yourself, it can kind of create this picture in your mind of someone who's kind of insecure, someone who's afraid to try things, afraid to go places, afraid to do things, someone who sort of creeps around, tiptoes around life, keeps to themselves. Get rid of that picture because that's not what happens when you get hold of this kind of reliance. Look at what flows out of Paul. He's thinking about other people, thinking about how he can help them. How verse 4, he can comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. His world has not shrunk. It's, it's not collapsed in on itself. <laughs> it's expanded. It includes others. And Paul reaches out to help them. This kind of, the co of comfort that he's gotten from God is so much that it was not just helpful to him. Now he has extra to give away. This kind of comfort turns you from someone who needs to be comforted into a comforter, someone who can help other people. It makes you like God himself. God comforts you, extends himself to you, and now you comfort others. You extend yourself to them. Because of what you've gotten from God, you're now making other people's lives better. It's part of what you see coming out of Paul's life. Look at his attitude. He's praising God in verse 3. He thinks this is a great God. He's not upset at all. He's looking, verse 11, for others to thank God as well, who also realize how great this God is. How great this God is that he can take self-oriented, self-reliant people who are foolishly building their lives on things that cannot last. And this amazing God takes them and transforms them to be like he is. Someone who's got lots to give. And Paul's confident, verse 10 that this God who has delivered him in the past will deliver him again. Either here on earth, maybe, or after he's died, definitely. Paul's optimistic, he's grateful, he responds well under fire, he's concerned to care about others who are struggling. In other words, by relying on God who raises the dead, Paul has not shrunk away from life. He embraces it even more fully. What he's lost then by losing his self-reliance, is his fear. His fear of what might happen to him if he obeys God, if he loves people. It's like he's almost saying, well, what's the worst thing that will happen to me if I do what God says? Maybe I'll lose money, lose time, lose my reputation, physical health, my life. <laughs> you know what? The cost really doesn't matter anymore. Because I'm getting my life back. I'm getting it all back. Nothing can stop that. And because I can't lose anything now, really, I am freed up to live a crazy life of faith that takes God seriously and that takes his mission seriously. I can now love people with abandon. I can give myself to them and to seeing them better off. Sure, I'm suffering, I'm afflicted when I obey God. Part of what it means, verse 5, to share in Christ's sufferings, to suffer because I follow Christ and obey him. But I'm also comforted. I share in Christ's comfort. He was raised from the dead, and I will be too because God loves me. 
And I can experience that kind of radical love now in a way that's so great. It, just, it, it, it more than makes up for anything I suffer. It settles me inside so that I can face the hardships of life while they're the hardships of life. It's really rare in this world to see someone like that. Really rare, but really attractive. You look at that and you think, don't, don't you want to be that kind of person? Someone who finds God satisfying and reliable, verse 9, when it's clear that nothing else is. Do you want the kind of comfort that transforms you inside so that, verse 6, you can patiently endure what is way beyond your ability to handle? Do you want, verse 7, unshaken hope in the face of what you and your friends are experiencing? Do you want to deal well with deadly perils, verse 10? To live a life of true, genuine thankfulness, verse 11, in a world that's marked by depression and complaining. That's what God holds out to you. That you could be this kind of person. Even when you feel the sentence of death in your heart. So then quickly, how do you get this? This kind of comfort that turns you into this kind of person. Point three, here's how. I'm going to run through several things quickly that you see Paul doing that you and I also have to do. Paul's talking about something that he has experienced personally. That means it's not enough to hear this from him. It's not enough to hear it from someone else. You have to experience this in your own life. You have to realize that our faith is not a philosophical system for making sense out of life. Yes, it gives us ways of thinking about life, but it's more than that. It's a way of life. It's a way of actually living life. That means you have to what? You have to live it. You have to actually engage this God personally and receive his comfort and then live out of receiving it. So what's that look like? First, it means that you praise God for who he is. You see and acknowledge his character like Paul does in verse 3. You praise God for who he is and you push against the lies of unbelief that you're tempted to believe. You know, those, those little thoughts that crop up in your mind that say, God is far away. God doesn't really care about me. He doesn't like me, can't be bothered with me, probably won't help me. You push against those lies by talking to God directly and you say to him, God, you are the father of mercies. You are the God of all comfort. You care about me. You want to comfort me, and you're merciful to me. You don't help me based on whether I deserve it. <laughs> you help me because you love me. Just like we talked about two weeks ago in Psalm 44, you remember in Scripture some of the ways that God's comfort and mercy have come across to his people. Maybe you even come back to this passage and you look for some of it there. You remember what God is like, and you tell him what you remember. You tell him how he's comforted others. And then you draw a line from those people to your own life. And you remind yourself this is the same God. And that what you've seen him do in those people's lives, he's also done in yours. And so you remember times when he's been merciful to you. You remember times when he has comforted you. You remember those times, and then you treat God like the person that he is. You talk to him about those times. You praise him for those. It's the first thing that you need to do. Second, you take seriously the opportunity that suffering gives you, whether it's big or small, to evaluate yourself, 
to evaluate where you put your hope. And you evaluate whether you're about to rely on yourself to feel better or whether you're going to rely on God, on his love for you and his commands to you. You evaluate whether you're going to trust him to give you what you need to live life like he's told you to live. You take some time to evaluate that, and if you discover that, yeah, I'm inclined to, to rely on myself, to believe that what I do will give me a better life than God promises, then what do you do? You repent. And you repent at the level of the heart, at the level of worship. You go to God and you tell him, I don't think I can stand this suffering. I'm so tempted to trust my normal plans to get out from under it. Please forgive me for that, but please give me greater desire. Give me greater trust in you. Why can you pray that kind of prayer? Because that's what God wants to give you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that faith in God is a gift from Him. It's a supernatural gift. That your ability to trust Him comes from Him. And so when you come to Him and say, I need to trust you more, God doesn't turn away from you and, be, and is upset. Instead, as Psalm 51, verse 7 tells us, God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. But He honors prayers that come from people who know that they need this kind of help from him. Just like the man who said to Jesus, I do believe, worship language, I do believe, help my unbelief. You need to pray the same kind of prayer when you see that you're inclined to trust yourself. So when you're suffering, you need to praise God for who he is. You need to evaluate if you're tempted to rely on yourself. And then third, you need to look for his comfort. Almost seems unnecessary to say that, right? I mean, it, it shouldn't his comfort be kind of obvious? And too often, his comfort is not obvious because we've started with ourselves and not with him, because we've relied on ourselves too much. And so we have an idea in our own minds of what his, this kind of comfort should look like. And so we look for that in our lives, and if we don't find exactly what we're expecting, we tend to say, well... I didn't get whatever that is. God didn't comfort me. I didn't get the comfort that I expected from him. I don't have time to hang out on this. But this is a really big problem in how a lot of us approach the Christian life. We come to it with certain expectations of what it should be, of what we should get out of it, and we get so zeroed in on those things on having them, on trying to make them happen, that that focus keeps our attention off of what God actually does give us, off of what we do receive from Him. It's a really important part of maturing in the faith to go from what you expect to get out of life to recognizing what God gives you and what He calls you to. It's a longer message for another day. What does that mean for here? Instead of starting with your own self's definition of comfort and with self's demands for that kind of comfort start with god and with his provision teach your heart to stop saying i didn't get and teach it to ask what did i get what did i receive god is the god of mercies of all comfort that means based on his character he did give me something so what is that where do I believe that he's good more than I used to? Where do I trust him more, rely on him more than I did? Where do I feel more certain 
of what he'll do in the future? Where do I care about meeting with him more? Where has my confidence in him grown? What has he given me to comfort me in my suffering? It's the third thing you need to do. Look for the comfort he gives. Fourth, ask for prayer. That's what Paul does in verse 11. He doesn't think that he can live the life of faith on his own. He's learned to rely on God, not himself, and now he's learned to rely on others who help him by their prayers. Notice that Paul does not hide his need. He talks about how miserable his situation was. He talks about how others can help him in it. How verse 11, that all the praise will go to God as many give thanks for the blessing that God gives. His help comes in part through the prayers of many. Paul needs God's help, and he needs the help of his community to deal with how hard his life is. And you and I need the same thing. That means that we need the humility of letting people in, of letting them see our need, of asking for their prayers. Again, this is hard to do in our world. Our culture pushes us in the opposite direction. Paul Barnett, a biblical scholar and pastor, framed this really well. He observed that modern people are so blinded by technology and blinded by their, sense, their own sense of power that they regard prayer and thanksgiving as weak, useless, and a joke. Now, you might not treat prayer as a joke, but whether you ask people to pray for you is a litmus test for how strong or weak you think prayer is. It's a litmus test for how much you still rely on yourself. So don't fool yourself by thinking, oh, I don't want to bother people with my troubles. I'll, I'll just keep them to myself. That's not humility. That's self-reliance in a different form. It's you saying, I don't need any help, either from God or his people. I don't need any help. Why? I think I'm big enough to handle things on my own. Paul doesn't think he's big enough. And so he shares his life. He wants the Corinthians to know, verse 8, of the affliction he experienced in Asia. And he asks them for prayer. So first, you need to praise God for who he is. Second, you need to evaluate if you're tempted to rely on yourself. Third, look for God's comfort. Fourth, ask for prayer. And finally, look for who you can comfort. See, once you understand, once you experience how God comforts, you're able then, verse 4, to comfort those who are in any affliction. You don't have to have the exact same experience that someone else does in order to help them. Why is that? Because at bottom, the heart issues are the same. We have the same tendencies to rely on ourselves to deal with suffering, and we have the same solution, a God who loves us up out of ourselves. Are some people more practiced and skillful at comforting others? Of course they are. But if you're not practiced and skilled, it doesn't mean that you can't comfort at all. <laughs> you don't have to be a professional comforter in order to help someone. What you need is to learn to see how you're tempted to rely on yourself, and you need to learn to see how God helps you when you're tempted to rely on yourself. Learn those things, and you'll be able to step into someone else's life and offer them the same comfort that you yourself have received from God. 
And if that's all we did, brothers and sisters, that would produce a community that would bring praise and thanksgiving to God. Because the larger world would see a, a community of people who run to each other when they're suffering to offer real help and comfort to each other. And that's why we always have to come back to Christ's death and resurrection. Because without it, you can't live this kind of life. Praise God when you're going through hard things. <laughs> Who does that? Take an honest, in-depth look at your sinful tendency to push God away. Seriously? Share your life with others when you're struggling. Ask for help in prayer. Look for others who need some of the comfort you've forgotten. Who can go through deep, intense suffering and come out living like that? If you want to live a life like that, then you need to know that nothing will ever come between you and God. That nothing, including death, will ever separate you from his love. And you need to know that he guarantees you a future that's so good that it's beyond your wildest imagination. That's why you need the gospel. That's what you find in the gospel. Jesus did not rely on himself. He relied on God, on his Father, and on what God said to do, even when that meant he was going to suffer. Jesus taught things, healed people in ways that set him in direct opposition to the religious authorities. They got so upset with him that they plotted to kill him. And it would have been so easy to just sit back for Jesus and, and, and just shut up. To quietly drift away, stay off their radar. And Jesus wouldn't do that. Because he only did what he saw the Father doing. And the Father was working to save you and me. And so Jesus didn't bail out when he could have. He didn't rely on himself to save himself before he was arrested. He didn't rely on himself or his own plans afterward. He doesn't run and hide from Judas. Didn't let his disciples fight back against those who arrested him. Didn't call for 12 legions of angels like he could have. Didn't take himself off the cross. Hung there when he didn't need to. Stayed there even when he was forsaken by God. Still believing what he had taught his disciples, that he would rise from the dead. He hung there believing that even though there was no comforting presence of God in that moment... And yet he believed that God would not abandon him to the grave. Why did he do all of that? So that you and I could live now relying on God too. So that you could live not relying on yourself. So that you could deal honestly with your worst sins. So that you could obey God without fearing what people might do, say about you. So that you can offer yourself to other people without worrying if they'll reject you. Jesus suffered what you should have so that you would not. He suffered so that you would be comforted instead. And being comforted, you then take your place in God's kingdom as his child, living the life that God himself lives. Lord God, these things are easy to say. And the reality is so far from where I see my own heart, I'm supposing far from where my brothers and sisters see their hearts. Lord, we know that you don't show us ourselves except in order to transform us and change us. And so, Lord, we cry out to you this morning. Please forgive us 
Forgive us for not taking you seriously. Forgive us for not taking your comfort seriously. Forgive us for living lives that are wrapped up in ourselves, that have nothing or little to do with you. And Lord, give us that kind of reliance on you that transforms us, that opens our hearts up to love you, and that drives us out into the world looking for those who need to be loved as well. In Jesus' name.